Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. We will continue tonight discussing Srila Jiva Goswami's Paramatma Sandarbha. We're on the 101st Anacheda, which we began at the end of the last discussion. So in our last discussion, Sri Jiva Goswami in this particular Anacheda, he's giving us some, I guess, point of reference, you would say, as to how we can look upon this empowerment of both the Asuras and the Asuras to the point that they can actually engage in Leela with the Lord. Because the Lord really doesn't become involved with the inferior material energy. So if he's going to enact Leela for the pleasure of his devotees, for the delight of his devotees, he has to withdraw a significant amount at least from external view. I mean, it's not that he turns his potencies off, but he, does, he doesn't fully manifest them because he takes a form which we can relate to. So the point being made here was that in order to engage in Leela with him, both the devas, the, the godly, and the ungodly, the asuras, they need to be infused with the Lord's internal potency just to engage in the Leela. The potency that's available them through the modes of material nature, goodness, passion, and ignorance is not sufficient to, to engage the Lord. He doesn't become involved in the modes of material nature. So Jiva's given us a couple ways to look at this. And one is that the Lord is empowering the mode of goodness in the Suras, and he's empowering the mode of passion and ignorance. So he's, he's providing part of his internal Shakti to these modes so that both the Suras and the Asuras can engage in Leela when he does manifest within the material world. Yes? So he's not empowering the individuals, he's empowering the modes that those individuals are... That's one of the ways that Jeeva's presented it here. He's Because they are under the influence of the modes of material nature. We can't say that the devas or the asuras are not under the... Inf they are. They have material bodies. They're here under the influence of the modes of material nature, under the influence of the time factor, and under the influence of their own providence, we call it, or karma. However, whatever nomenclature we, we want to use, we're, we're shackled here. We're shackled to what we did in the past. We're shackled to our own sense of self, and we're predominated by the external energy which consists of goodness, passion, and ignorance, to a greater or lesser extent according to basically our natures. And we've determined our natures based on the nature we've adopted from prior association with the modes. If in your past life you were in a godly family and you were righteous, influenced by the mode of goodness. You didn't 
run from your home because it was just too much for you. You actually stayed with that influence and it predominated your life, then your next life you're going you're gonna to be influenced by that. So that's the context. Here again, we're talking about the supreme. I mean, we're not influenced by the Moses. If you want to, I mean, let's, if you want to get ontologically uh, into what's going on here, it's a fact. We're not influenced by the modes either. But it sure seems like we are. Why? Because we, we allow ourselves to be predominated by the modes of material nature due to our, our intent, our desire. You could say the jiva does nothing in the material world, so the whole discussion is a mute point, so let's all go home. But we are influenced by the modes. We do have material bodies. We think the bodies are ourselves. If you could come to the point where you realize you weren't your body, your mind, your intelligence, your false ego, you weren't your family, you weren't your job, you weren't your car, you, if you could come to that level, like a Sukadev, then you can walk free in the world. But the Asuras and the Suras, neither of them are at the stage of a Sukadev. A Sukadev, he just stands by quietly on the sidelines and says, oh, this is an amazing thing. But he's not involved in it. Yes. You might have already said this, but is it no? So Krishna is empowering. So is the power that he's using to empower is that his Sandini Sangit and yes, it? his Surup Shakti, his internal potency, because he doesn't involve himself with his Bahiranga Shakti. Right. He doesn't directly, and he's he doesn't come under the influence of it. It's there's no. There's no way that he interacts with that shakti because it's it's such a secondary shakti to his internal swarup shakti, and there's no attraction for him there. There's nothing that that shakti that what's the nature of that shakti? It's that one third potency of the Lord. Now, if we look to the 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 ontological explanation of one-third, I'm sorry, one-fourth and three-fourths energies of the Lord, what's the nature of the one-fourth energy? Death, Mitchiloka. And the three-fourth energy? It's, it's, it's eternal. It's fearlessness because there's no death. And it's all auspicious. Everything about it is, is auspicious. This is one of the ways that it's being explained. How do we understand this happening? How can we wrap our mind around this potency of the Lord coming within a jiva so that the Lord can enact Leela? How can we look at that? But from our frame of reference. So in the last discussion, at the beginning of the Sanucheta, Jiva Goswami gave us one explanation. Well, you can look at it like a Surya Kantamani, a magnifying glass. Now, the magnifying glass doesn't burn the paper. To a small child, you could say, look, I'm going to burn this paper and hold it up. And, and they'd be, oh, give me that. Let me see what I can. To somebody that has some wherewithal, some knowledge, then they know that really it's the sun, Surya, 
that's making the gem of the magnifying glass have potency. So that's one analogy that Jesus given us. Now these analogies are coming from this verse spoken by Sukadev Goswami in response to Maharaj Pariksit's inquiry regarding this subject overall. He wanted to know how is this that the Lord can enact Leela in the material world and apparently, and it sure looks to me like there's partiality there. But I know the Lord's not partial like that. So could you please explain this to me? So the verse, one of the verses that we're, that Jeeva's using in a, by way of explanation here, and specifically in this Anucheta, is Bhagavan appears like light, jyoti, and other elements, and thus he cannot be discerned from the bodies, sangatat, of the devas and asuras. It is only the wise who, after careful, deliver, careful deliberation, ultimately come to know that the self is situated in the self, that the self of all selves, the supreme, has become situated in individual selves to enact Leela. Now we'll go on with a further explanation, which we began in the last class, and we will continue. And this is, well, also in the verse, as, it, as Sukadev spoke it, in the beginning it says, Bhagavan appears like light and other elements. So you've given us a nice exp- explanation of light and, being, and, the, and the magnifying glass. Is there more that can be explained? So Jeeva's going to say, yeah, let's, we can look at this in a couple different ways. And here's another way we can look at it. So we'll continue. The examples of light and so on are now interpreted differently. Although it is only by the power of light embedded in the eye that light's own corresponding portion as color and form, rupa, become perceptible, yet it appears outwardly to the observer that the earth itself, the physical objects, constitute the earth element with its unique property of fragrance and all the other properties belonging to the five elements, is the manifester of the perceived color or form. Just imagine we're sitting here and we're looking out through this gorgeous window that's right there and we're looking at the cows. And our, our sense of things, our sense of the perception is, I'm seeing the cow. Well, yeah, but technically speaking, what's happening? You're seeing light and form. And that light and form that the eye is perceiving is a characteristic of sight. The sight, the eye perceives, perceives light just as the ear perceives sound. But really, the ear is, what, what, what is that sound? This is, this is interesting stuff here that Jesus bring it out. Just like we're sitting here, and I pick up the drum and start hitting it. So you're, you're looking at that, and you're, you're getting a whole experience. Oh, 
the devotees playing Madanga. I took a leap of faith there. You'd consider me a devotee, but anyway. <laughs> you, the point is, you'd you'd think that this is making the sound, but really, what are you hearing? You're hearing the vibration of the ether. You're not hearing a drum. You're not seeing a cow. You're seeing the you're seeing the energy called light. You're hearing the energy called sound. Those energies, those tan mantras are what? They are they are truly built into that sense perception into those elements. So we get back to the Sankhya philosophy. So it seems like a technical point, but if you think about it, yeah, I'm not really, I'm relating the cow with the, with the color and the form that I'm perceiving, or I'm relating this instrument with the sound that I'm hearing, and I put it, my brain puts it all together in one package. But Jiva's saying, well, let's break it apart and look at it a different way. And if you break it apart and look at it a different way, then we can use that way of looking at it as an analogy to understand this empowerment on the part of the Lord. You're, you're making a relationship, and that relationship you're perceiving as as the complete experience. Similarly, although it is only the power of the sky element, Nabas, present within the ear, that the sky's own corresponding portion as sound becomes detectable. It appears to be observed to the observer that it is a kettle drum itself or some other instrument. That is the manifestor of the sound. But really the manifestor of the sound, if we take it, we take it scientifically, the manifestor of the sound is the vibration of the ether. The manifestor of the action we're seeing as a deva who's assisting the Lord or an asura who's in opposition to the Lord. But really, it's the Lord himself Who's, who is. So if you, if you see it in the true context of the empowerment that's going on, just like the senses are empowered to perceive different sense objects, if you can see it that way, then you can always, always also use that kind of an understanding to understand this empowerment and how the Lord... The tool. Is a, this happens only because... All these properties of form, sound, and so on, belonging to their source elements, get mixed up with the objects that appear to manifest them. They get mixed up. But in reality, they belong to the source elements and not to the objects through which they are apparently discerned. And the term used here is sangati. So let's, let's talk about that. 
So let me finish the annotator proper. Similarly, the wise intuit the self. This is the analogy. The wise intuit the self. The supreme eminent regulator, Ishvara, as situated within the individual self. Even though not discerned as such by others because of his abidance with the intermixture of their respective bodies. In other words, it's not that God comes into the Asuras and the Asuras so he can engage in his Leela because he doesn't interact with the modes of material nature, which is the predominant nature of their material embodiment. So therefore, he has to, he has to infuse them with his potency, is the point being made. Sangatat. With the intermixture of their respective bodies. The wise know that it is only with a portion of his own intrinsic power transmitted into the devas and asuras that he conducts his play. He's playing with his internal potency. He's not playing with the external potency that's covered the jiva, the jiva shakti, his other shakti. He's not, he's not interacting with that when he engages in Leela. And we've developed this point. I mean, if God comes into the material universe, how much, how much is there? How much, there's nothing that the jivas or the asuras have to offer the Lord. The whole point of this section of the, of the Paramatma Sandarva is to illustrate the point that the only reason any of this is going on is because there's bhakti in the world. If there was no bhakti, there'd be no leela. Because there'd be no one that Krishna would want to nourish. There'd be no... The, the total purpose of him making a descent is in order to enliven the devotee. That's the total purpose. But Jeeva's taking that to the nth degree. Well, if you really want to know the truth, it's the total purpose of it all. The material creation is just a side. It's a consequence. The Lord wants to interact with his devotees. Some of his, some of his devotees are still sadikas within the material universe. And he wants their, he has their best interest at heart because they have a portion of bhakti in their heart. And that portion in and of itself, even in its immature state, the unripened mango of bhakti that they receive from the guru, even in that immature state, he immediately wants to nourish it. And because he wants to nourish it, there's a material creation. It's because they're still, to some extent, under the influence of the modes of material nature. Want to raise a doubt? <laughs> a further doubt is raised. In the previous section, it was explained that Bhagavan plays only with his own intrinsic potency. He, so this we've gone over. He, there's nothing, nothing in the material world to attract him. It's like a, it's a sandbox without toys. So he's not going to stay there long. Right? You put the child in the sandbox, no toys. 
No bucket, no shovel, no little dump truck. How long is he? There's nothing, nothing there. The kid's like, okay, what am I sitting here in this, in this box of sand for? Daddy, why'd you put me here? So, similarly, the Lord had, there's nothing that the material world has to offer the Supreme. There's nothing to attract him to perform actions. He has nothing to play with. In the previous Anacheta, it was explained that Bhagavan plays only with his own intrinsic potency, Swarup Shakti. But to external appearances, it would seem that he also plays with the Devas and Asuras. How is that? That's what's being answered here. How is that? Well, he only plays with his internal Shakti, so he's got to infuse his Shakti into those. Well, we need, how does he do that? How can we look upon that? Well, one way is to look at it is the fact that you could have a magnifying glass and the power come, of the sun can come through the glass and you think the glass is setting the paper on fire. No, it's the power of the sun. If you want to get a little more, more subtle in this understanding, look at your own senses is what Jeeva is saying. We can look at our own senses through the light of this verse from Sukadev Goswami and we can say, look at, look at your other senses. You immediately, by association, assume that the form of light and color that you see out the window is a cow grazing. But what is the eye actually perceiving? Light and form. Now, I could give you a strong dose of LSD and you could look out that same window. But your perception would not be the, the standard perception that we, the rest of us, irrespective of your intoxicated brain's interpretation of what's coming into the eye, the rest of us would say, Sumati, the forest is not on fire. It's just the cows eating grass. That's kind of the point being made here. And to take that analogy to your other senses. And it also helps us to understand the nature of the material existence and how the senses are interrelating and how the Sangati is there that we put, we put these forms that are coming from the earth element that have forms and the smells and the tastes all together. Shujiva concludes that it is only because of the properties of form, sound, and so on belonging to their source elements become compounded, sangata, with the objects that manifest them that a common person is unable to discern them as distinct from their objects. The reality is something quite different. The word sangata literally means a collection, a group of things put together, or an aggregate. In this verse, it refers specifically to the body, which is a combination of various tattvas, such as earth and water. Shijiva Goswami glosses it, gives his own understanding of this term, as a mixture, samisra and employs the ablative case in the sense of reasoning or cause. The sense is that 
Bhagavan's potency is mixed with the other tattvas, and hence it is not possible for a common person to discern it. So his potency, which is the only potency that he reacts with when he engages in Leela, mixes with the predominant modes in the bodies of those those suras and asuras, and thus the the Leela is enacted seamlessly, so to speak, within the mixture of the other elements. And he, of course, is interacting with that Shakti and not with directly the modes of material nature. It's an interesting technical, esoteric way of, of, of understanding the Lord can come in the world and not be of the world. The, world. the Lord can appear to perform actions under the influence of the modes of material nature or with the modes of material nature. But he's, he's really not. There, you know, and this, this is technical stuff, but it's it's very interesting the way Jiva brings these these things out, and they're right there. Sukadev Goswami is explaining it, but um, I mean, Jiva's commentary on this verse in relation to this subject matter is shows his well, a lot of God is considering the greatest logician. That there is to come to to be able to to milk these verses for these kind of understandings. Well, now let's take it another step. So we've seen that the Lord is engaging in Leela in the material world. So this happens during the during the period of of manifestation. But Jiva says, well, actually, if you look at it. And you look at the way Sukadev Goswami has responded. You look deeply into what he said here to Maharaj Pariksit. You can also come away with the understanding that the destruction of and the creation of the universe, in addition to the maintenance of the universe and during the maintenance, maintenance period when the universe is here, then the Leela manifests, but if you go on, let's go on in this understanding from Sukadev, and we'll see the destruction and the creation of the universe are also only for the purpose of the devotees. The next Anachata reads as follows. In this way, Sukadev has concluded that the purpose of Bhagavan's own personal leelas, such as fighting with the Asuras, is only to give delight to the devotees, and that the sustenance of the cosmos occurs automatically as a subsidiary outcome of it. It's a byproduct. Everything else. Everything else. Just look at a simple one. The reason that New York City hasn't completely been destroyed is because there's a temple in the middle of it. I mean, that's really the as radical as what Jiva's saying here. You see the point? The point is only for the delight of his devotees. 
Well, let's just extrapolate. You can extrapolate. Well, there's, there's only one reason that these demons have not blown up the whole planet with their nuclear weapons by now. Is there one reason that John F. Kennedy didn't push the button when he, under all other circumstances, could? Could it have been that a pure devotee came to the Western world? If we can look at things devotionally, if we can look at things in light of what Jeeva is trying to, trying to teach us here, then actually that wouldn't apply because Prabhupada came after the missile crisis, didn't he? Well, he was going to come, so he was blown up. He was preparing. Yes. The intent of the devotee had already been there in Prabhupada's heart. I'm going to America. So his intent, as Guru Maharaj explained in relationship to the laying of the foundation of the Mayapur temple, that Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Dev Swami came to, to help Prabhupada lay this, the, but he, so he gave him some prasadam and he gave him a nap. And while Bhakti Rakshak Sinaday was taking a nap, Prabhupada went out and laid the cornerstone. Prabhupada, you invited, you know, you invited Sridhar Swami to come and lay the cornerstone with you. Well, he came. His intent was there to lay the cornerstone. So the fact that he was take, that I did it, it doesn't matter. His intent was enough. He showed up. So the same point could be made there. Prabhupada had the intent to come. Maybe anyway, we're just speculating here. But it's speculation based on. It's just to give you, give us an idea. I've gone off on this wild tangent. Let my mind take things to the nth degree. But the point is, what's Jiva doing here in relationship to the whole material creation? Now, in order to remove all doubts, Jiva continues, in regard to the purpose of Bhagavan's other acts, such as glancing upon Prakriti at the onset of creation, and withdrawing his glance during the period of dissolution, Sukadeva affirms the non-distinction of Bhagavan's three acts of creation, sustenance, and dissolution by applying the principle of extrapolation, atidesa. Then he quotes Sukadeva Goswami's next verse in the Bhagavatam dialogue. When the Supreme Self, Para, desires to create bodies for himself, then from out of the equilibriated state of the three gunas, he separately brings forth Rajas by his Maya potency. When Ishvara wishes to sport in these manifold forms, he manifests Sattva, and when on the verge of going to sleep, he impels Thomas. In the con- now Jeeva is going to explain this verse in the context of his discourse. <coughs> As we've explained, there's not just one explanation to any one verse within the Bhagavatam. This is the only way you can look at a verse. It's like you wouldn't even know the Bhagavatam. 
There's no entry into the Bhagavatam when you think you know the Bhagavatam. So, we also have, have the narration of that, the child going to study the Bhagavatam, coming back and say, yep, I studied. So anyway, that's, that's, that's the point. In the context of the discussion that Jiva is trying to relate, the knowledge that Jiva is trying to relate to us, he's going to give us an explanation of these verses spoken by Sukadev Goswami, which, which fits into that discussion. But when the Acharyas do this, when they, as we say, milk the Shastra for these various meanings, it's, it's, it's done fully dependent on what's provided in the Shastra. It's not something new and it's not something that isn't there. It's something that they're revealing to the disciple, to the student. It's a meaning that they're, that's already there in the Shastra that they are bringing out. So when we say Guru Sadhu Shastra is the, those three together formulate the ultimate Praman, the ultimate understanding. We, we need, you have to have the Shastra as the basis of anything that's put forward as a conclusion to nourish spiritual development. So as a philosophical conclusion, we rely on the expert explanations of the sadhus and the guru. They, they put it in a context and now Jiva's using it in a particular context. He's using it in a context to explain a philosophical point. Sometimes the verses are, the guru will take a verse and he'll use it in the context to try to instill a, uh, a, soci a social value depending on the adhikari, the qualification of the disciple. So that is another discussion, but there's a lot of depth here in looking at these verses and even, even, if you, even ourselves as students, as you read different commentaries on the Bhagavatam, you'll come to a verse and you'll read A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, my spiritual master's commentary, and he'll be saying one thing, and, and then you go to Vishwanath's Bhagavatam commentary, his tikas, and you read the same verse, and he's using the verse in an entirely different context to convey an entirely different instruction. Sometimes Prabhupada's using a broad stroke to give us a broad understanding for, for, for spiritual growth. And Vishwanath may be looking at it and, and he may be writing a much more nuanced or vice versa. It doesn't, it goes both ways. But a, the guru is giving commentary. It's all, it's all coming. We hear from the, the, the scripture truly, the understanding of the scripture is in the heart of the sadhu. But you can't remove the scripture from the basis from the foundation of 
what constitutes religious spiritual understanding in human society. The scripture is the, the scripture is the basis. So Jiva's explanation of this verse in the context that he's trying to relay. The word yada, when, here refers to the specific time in which Bhagavan's own volition act of creation is characterized. The word esa para means the supreme regulator Parameshwar. The word swamayaya by his maya in this case means out of compassion for his devotees. In this case, I mean, Jeeva's explaining. In this case, I'm talking in the context of getting this major idea across to you in my Sandarbhas. So, Mayaya here means the Lord's compassion. I'm not using the word Maya that's in the verse to explain the, the conventional way that one would look at Maya is simply the external material energy of the Supreme. No. In the context, Maya here means the Lord is manifesting a material universe out of compassion for his devotees. Important point, how we see these things. In this case means out of compassion for his devotees. The bodies, Pura, that he desires to create refers to the physical forms of the not yet perfected practicing devotees, sadikas, from the previous cycle of creation. That he desires to create such forms for himself means that he longs to make them the seats of his own abiding. Since the practicing devotees were dissolved in him along with Prakriti during the period of dissolution, he glances at Prakriti in order to bring about their appearance. What a different way to look at creation, maintenance, and destruction of the material universe. The word, this is interesting, especially in the context of other things that are under discussion. I came across this sentence from Jiva Goswami in this particular Anucheta. The word pritak, separate, refers to Parameshwar's potency, Shakti, known as Jiva Maya, which is distinct from the intrinsic potency, Swarup Shakti. Distinct from. In the context of the misconception that there is a, we have a specific Swarup, spiritual Swarup. We have an intrinsic relationship with the Lord that's part of our nature. And it can be different from what... So the, the jivas are not uniform. There's Santa jivas, Dasya jivas, Sakya, Vatsalya, and Madhurya jivas. Well, this verse kind of doesn't lend itself to that understanding at all. Known as Jiva Maya, which is distinct from the intrinsic potency. So when Parameswar desires to create forms for his own abiding, at that time, <clears throat> impelling this Jiva Maya potency by a semblance of his power in the form of his own 
volitional act, he brings forth rajas, as in the previous creative cycle. This means that rajas is thrown out or activated from the unmanifested state of prakriti, which we generally call pradhan, um, in which all three gunas are in an equilibrated condition, a phenomenal re- related to him as his part. Again, here referring to time as that volitive agent of the Supreme, not as time as an aspect of the external energy. So Jiva's brought out also in relationship to time. We can look at it in those two ways. But he said, in the context of what I'm explaining here, this is the way I'm using it. Just as we here, when I talk about Maya in the context of this discussion, I'm talking about the Lord's mercy aspect. The Anucheta continues. Alternatively, the word pritak, pritak can be taken as referring to time qualified by the demonstrative pronoun essa, this. The meaning would then be that it is specifically this factor of time which is distinct in functions under the jurisdiction of Maya that impels the respective gunas. In this case, the other pronoun, asal, should also refer to time and not to Parameshwar. He's basically saying there's two ways you can look at time and if you look at these words in the other way, then then you come to the ex, to the understanding that time is an agency of Maya. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. So, like you, have, I was thinking when you were talking also that you said that he does not engage with the Jiva Shakti. That's why he has to infuse, empower, infuse his own Shakti in there. And then you said that that was, and I agree, that's more proof of how there is no sarup within the jiva. And then, then I'm wondering, so the jiva that goes to Galok, what's the deal there? I mean, obviously a state remains a jiva shakti. Mm-hmm. The jiva is always a jiva. Mm-hmm. So is so Krishna is relating not with the jiva, or is he? Well, he, that jiva uh-huh. has been, been completely infused with Swarup Shakti. But he, never, he doesn't change to, to Swarup Shakti. Well, the jiva doesn't change to Maya Shakti when it comes into contact with Maya even. Uh-huh. That's our mis... That's, we think we're this body, but we're not. We think this is, we're this mind, intelligence, and foggy. We're not. But it's different when you when you apply the the Lord's internal potency, you are. You do, do become a coward boy or a, or a gopi or a, you know, a mother or a father. You actually do become those. So then that, to me, the first one in the material world is proof that we don't have a sarup. And the second one... A spiritual sarup, yes. Yeah, proves that we, well, we don't have we a material sarup either. You're right. We don't have a... Yeah. We, that we, it's impossible to fall. That there can be no fall. Because... The jiva is is no longer 
the potential of falling is no longer there. The Lord is interacting. Yes. Yes. With, with his Shakti. With his Shakti. Which yes. you, you have become, you have taken on. Just like Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu took on, <laughs> took on the, the glow of Radha. We take on a little portion of Radha's glow and Krishna's, then, then we're involved with him. As Guru Maharaj says, there's a little bit of Radha in every devotee. And that Radha is going to grow. It's not going to grow to the point that you're Radha, but it's going to grow sufficiently that the material energy is going to be indifferent. You're going to be indifferent to it because... Even if you let them use their argument, well, you become envious and you leave. But the Lord would not interact with your enviousness. He wouldn't even recognize it. He wouldn't empower you. And you will see that in the next two annotations. Good point. That'll, that's going to come out too. Yeah, it's nice. Jeeva's done it all. He's, he, he'll cover that because he's going to talk about that. Yes, sir. Thank you for your class. Um, um, I wanted to ask about uh, when Krishna um, empowers the, the suras or the, the suras, um, is he, um, when he empowers them, does he, do they still do what they normally do? Mm-hmm. Or is he controlling them also with his power to do what he wants them to do in the middle or whatever? Or do they still think, oh, I'm going to... Well, we have our limited independence. I mean, they're still doing what what is their nature within the material world. Their nature is, is such. So from there, he's, he's not really... He's not really involving himself in the modes of material nature. Those modes are, are playing themselves out. Does it have some influence on the material energy? Depends on your angle of vision. He does it so expertly that from the materialistic viewpoint, I, we could say no. From the spiritual viewpoint, absolutely. It just here again. It depends on how are we going to look at this this enactment of the Lord's lila. So from the devotional viewpoint, from the bhakti viewpoint, everything he does is for the benefit of everyone, under every uh, under every condition, whether it be a devotee or a demon. He's the same. He's equally disposed towards everyone. From the viewpoint of the materialists. God doesn't even exist, so what, what's, the, what's the purpose of your... I would say, does he? I would say absolutely. Because why? Because his Leela comes into the material world, and even if we, if we don't have the opportunity to be directly a, a participant or an observer of that Leela, we, then we indirectly we observe and participate by hearing, and even in hearing we can, we can perfect our hearing to the point that and our meditation on that hearing to the point that we do enter into it uh, through meditation. So, yes, it's a very profound effect because of the enthusing of his devotees. When they, When his devotees become enthused, then the opportunity of bhakti within the material world 
increases unlimitedly simply through their being enthused. So he allows that. That, that is the one thing. Bhakti comes from the bhakta. If they're becoming enthused, then they're, then they're going out into the world. Even you could say a, the devotees having a kirtan in, 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 this, in the middle of a, of a major city is simply because the Lord came 5,000 years ago and those devotees are so enthused about the display of pastimes that he put on in Vraj that they're out in the streets chanting Hare Krishna. You need to come and inviting people. Please come. I want to tell you about what happened 5,000 years ago in Vrindavan or 500 years ago in Navadweep. Yeah, they definitely, the Lord's having a big, but does he get involved in the karma of people? And this? No, that's not his intent. It's not the intent of his Leela. Is it like a script, though? And then these guys are just kind of showing up as actors in the play that's already, you know, that Krishna is the um, director of? Mm. Yeah, you can look at it like that. Like but, an example, like like Indra, like like Indra's pouring down the rain, you know, on, in the Godavarya. So like, so you look at that and you think, well, Indra, that's his personality. He just like, you know, you get on his yeah, bad track. He's just gonna do his thing, you know. Doesn't matter who it is. Or is Krishna actually orchestrating that whole thing? Like. Like we, that's our way we we see it is that he's orchestrating that. That's again, I say, what's the viewpoint? What's the viewpoint of the? Of, you know, it depends on what you're looking, what viewpoint you're using. We would say, not a blade of grass moves without the, you know, the will of the supreme. And what Jiva's saying is, and those grass blades, even the fact that they grew out of the ground, is only because Krishna wants to nourish the. <laughs> The devotees. So he's taking the whole creative thing back to just the interaction with the devotees. Everything else is just a side consequence. It's a matter of viewpoint. I don't know if you'll be able to sell that viewpoint at your big colleges and universities. (laughs) They think the purpose of creation, well, they think it could be a bang or something else. Yeah, it's a matter of viewpoint. Our viewpoint, of course, everything's moving in Krishna's direction. But he also, as Jiva points out, he does it so seamlessly even when he comes in. I mean, as I said, it's not like... I mean, imagine you have the sun in the room and you have a a firefly. So the the demigods are thinking they're assisting the Lord in in fighting the demons. The sun's there. What what's what's the light of the firefly going to do? So he does it in such a way that he doesn't disrupt. He doesn't want to disrupt. He's he's kind and, and considerate of everyone's position, unless you offend his devotee, unless you go up against it. Then he'll jump out of the pillar to defend his devotee. The hell with the laws of material nature. I'm not coming. I'm not waiting to take birth and appear like I take a normal birth. I'm coming now. He, my devotee's in distress. Sometimes he contravenes the laws of material nature too. 
Thank you so much for your association.